I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Heidi Seek, the co-founder and CEO of Vote Pro-Choice. It's an organization that helps voters elect pro-choice champions. Heidi breaks down the details of anti-choice legislation that's happening all around the country. And she really gets into the weeds about the legal process, the legislative process, and of course, the history of these laws, including breaking down many of the trigger laws that will go into effect if Roe v. Wade is overturned. We also talk about the Mississippi anti-choice bill that's going to be going before the Supreme Court later this year. I learned so much from this conversation with Heidi Seek. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with the co-founder and CEO of Vote Pro-Choice, Heidi Seek. Heidi Seek, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Not totally excited to talk about this subject, but glad to be here. But I do want to start off with talking about the elephant in the room regarding reproductive justice and what's happened recently in Texas, mm-hmm. right? As we know, the decision to have a six-week abortion ban in, in Texas, which is essentially just an abortion ban, right? Because no one knows that they're pregnant at six weeks. So basically a banned abortion in Texas, the entire state of Texas. And I feel like it's been about a week and a half, maybe two weeks. You know, there are some people who are truly anxious about this, like you and I, lots of activists, you know, people on the ground, and especially the women in Texas. But But I am nervous that people are going to move on, right, from this. In the news cycle, I see it kind of waning. And and it's going to spread across the country before it's too late, right? It's going to happen state by state. Am I being kind of, you know, too anxious about this, kind of hyperbolic about it? Oh, no, you are not being hyperbolic about it at all. Uh, As I like to say, this is a constitutional emergency of national importance. So conversations like this could not be more important. And I will say that this Texas bill that was signed into law by Governor Greg Abbott in May, who is, by the way, up for re-election in 2022, and he must be removed, is, is a six-week abortion ban, but it is actually more insidious than that. It is an innovation in legislation to circumvent the constitutional protections of Roe. So it's even scarier than a, your average six-week abortion ban that's been happening over the course of the last decade. Now, I want to frame this Texas situation in a, in a bigger picture. This is not a new phenomenon of this type of legislation that's, that's trying to prevent people from accessing reproductive health care. This has been going on since the mid-80s. Now, Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973, which provides constitutional access to abortion uh, with some caveats, but it created that perspective of a trimester. So it's abortion up until viability, which is around 24 weeks. That has been constitutional protected access since 1973. However, since around the mid-80s, the Republican Party, particularly like the Reagan Republicans, decided that they needed to find a lever for a particular kind of evangelical, white supremacist, um, super conservative that they needed to keep connected to the, the Republican Party in order for them to win elections and to build power. So they figured out that abortion was the thing. And since the mid-80s, they had been funding an extraordinary amount of money into infrastructure to allow for this small group of people, this is roughly 18 to 20% of the electorate, that has been given outsized power because of this investment in infrastructure. And what do I mean by that? There's protest infrastructure, there is 
leadership development in colleges and youth groups. There are templated pieces of legislation. There is support for campaigns in down-ballot races that has been going on for 30 years. And more insidiously is the recruitment and the placement of federal justices that are extremely conservative. So what we're seeing now is the fruition of this investment. So this law is one of a thousand. They have the overly funded anti-choice minority have been introducing pieces of legislation like this since the early 90s. I was working in the Nebraska Unicameral um, in 1992 when this first started. What these pieces of legislation do is try to find ways around the constitutional protection of Roe to prevent people from accessing abortion. And they've evolved over time, but hundreds of pieces have been passed. They include straight-up post-Roe trigger bans that would ban abortion if Roe is overturned to these little insidious, like, uh, propaganda legislation that's like waiting periods, mandatory ultrasounds that are all contextualized in, in protecting pregnant people, but are actually about preventing access. So this is just another innovation in that, and this is a particularly terrifying one because they figured out a way around the constitutional protection of Roe. So when you hear about the Texas six-week abortion ban, we've had other six-week abortion bans that are unconstitutional on its face. Those have to kind of flow up through the judicial system into the appeals courts that will you know, eventually face the Supreme Court. And we can talk about the Supreme Court in a minute. But this one actually goes around the judicial system by deputizing any private citizen from being able to sue an abortion provider or someone helping someone get an abortion. So it's like vigilantes with bounties that is just unheard of. And the Supreme Court, in the dark of night, allowed it to go into effect on September one. So this is the disaster. You are absolutely right. And I'm glad you mentioned that this has been happening since the 80s and probably since before then, since, you know, Roe was enacted in, in 1973. But there's a book called Obstacle Course, which everyone should read by Carol Joffe, which talks about the obstacles in every state. I mean, there are hundreds of them, if not thousands of them that have been happening for decades, you know, like 20, you know, 20 40 years. Right. And Abortion is effectively banned in more states than we realize. I mean, there are circumstances in this book that she lay out where women have to travel several states, you know, and they have to go through this waiting period, like you said. And so it's really important that people realize that this didn't just start happening. Oh, no. And the thing that's really scary about Texas is exactly what you said. They found a way to circumvent the Constitution. And I think they've created a blueprint for other states that want to do the same thing. Oh, not think. They have created a blueprint. And I, I've heard rumors. Um, there are rumblings in Arkansas, South Dakota, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Florida, Utah, I think North Dakota, West Virginia, that are they're looking at passing this particular kind of legislation now. So I, I do want to take a step back. And usually I start these conversations by saying that we are talking about abortion. We're talking about Roe v. Wade and the constitutional access to abortion. But Sometimes when people hear this subject, they are like, oh, that's a woman's thing. You know, it's a Planned Parenthood and they roll thing. And I want to sound the alarm to everyone listening that this is not just a woman's issue. This is an everyone issue. We are talking about a overly funded anti-choice minority that has a perspective that the government has jurisdiction over your reproductive freedom, that the government has a role to say if you should remain pregnant when you don't want to be. And not only does this impact the pregnant person, 
which could be a woman or a transgender man or a non-binary person. It impacts the entire community around that person, the partner, the family, the, the dreams and wishes that folks have for their lives, their educational opportunities, their jobs, their, um, you know, here's the thing. One in four people who are in reproductive age and could get pregnant have an abortion, and two-thirds of those are mothers. That is a whole lot of people. And now, you know, with Roe v. Wade, you know, it does provide a constitutional access for abortion, but roughly 56% of this country lives in a place that's hostile to their ability to exercise reproductive freedom. And the fact of the matter is access has been really challenging for low-income people from day one. But now with this Texas ban, it's over for one in 10 people because that's how big Texas is. So you add all these other states, we're talking about 56% of this country is now in a state of reproductive coercion. So this is a sound the alarm, you know, alert all the media, invite everyone into this conversation because the fact of the matter is, and this is the good news, 80% of this country believes that Roe v. Wade should not be overturned. We are a pro-choice nation. But because of the investment in this anti-choice infrastructure, there's been so much misinformation and so much propaganda that's made us all very uncomfortable about even talking about it. We've all been confused and inundated with images that you'll see out there in protests that are, you know, disconcerting. And we hear all of these messages about, well, you know, um, Democrats are all about, you know, late term abortions and things like that. That's all propaganda that's that's distracting from the reality of this being a foundational issue of freedom. So we are in a crisis. Everyone needs to be involved. And we actually do have a lot of power to stop that. But we can talk about what that looks like. Yeah, but that's the thing. I think I kind of hinted at that in my first question. How do you go from 80%? I, I was going to ask you the number. You read my mind. 80% of the country supporting something, something that you know changes a person's life so fundamentally, and not just that person's life, but all of the peripheral people in their lives, right? The partners, the family, the community. How do you go from 80% to something like this happening where it's effectively banned? And I, and I liken it to you know, being like this, this rapidly spreading deadly wildfire. And people are just kind of like, well, it's not in my backyard yet. So I'm, I'm not in danger. Like, <laughs> I would imagine that with those numbers, you know, supporting it, that people would be in the streets. Yes. Well, what we're seeing is uh, obviously we're all kind of exhausted after the trauma of the last five years and just all of the inundation of issues that are coming at us. But I will say what I have seen over the course of my work in reproductive rights for the last 30 years is this is a long-term investment and a political strategy that is focused on leadership development. What I mean by this is for the last 30 years, that anti-choice infrastructure, the Republican Party, evangelical churches have been insidiously elevating elected officials in state and local offices that are now in positions to make to in position of authority to make decisions and legislation. That's what we're seeing and the judges. So it's not been like, um, it's like been a slow burn, right? Over the course of time, this investment in infrastructure has not been matched by the progressive democratic party structures. Honestly, like real talk, having been in reproductive rights and health and justice for the last 30 years, we have abdicated a lot of that to women's groups, Planned Parenthood, NARAL. 
It's like, oh, they're going to take care of it. Let's just write a check to Planned Parenthood and good. We're good, you know? And the fact that we've had a bunch of pro-choice presidents like President Clinton and President Obama and Roe v. Wade is still constitutional. There's been a perspective of like, we're okay. Not paying attention to the fact that there is this slow chipping away in state legislatures and now even cities and towns are starting to pass these insidious little pieces of legislation called sanctuary of the unborn or something crazy. But it's been a slow chipping away over time that with also lack of media coverage and local and state legislation, we haven't really seen the magnitude of the problem. So why, that's why this conversation is very important, because Texas brought a little flashpoint, like you said, a fire. It's like a forest fire started, but now we get to see that the kindling has been available everywhere and, and the burning has been happening. So there are 10 states already that have post-road trigger bans in place. What does that mean? So if Roe v. Wade is overturned, and we should talk about that in this conversation, likely will be next year. So just put a pin in that. But if Roe v. Wade is overturned in the state of Louisiana, for example, there's a law on the books that was passed in 2006 that says 10 days after Roe's overturned, abortion becomes a felony offense, $100,000 fine, and anyone providing an abortion or assisting someone with getting an abortion will be mandatory charge and sent to 10 years forced labor camp, and there is no exception for rape or incest. You're kidding me. This has been on the books since 2006, and that's what the trigger bans across the country say. So this has been happening for over a decade, two decades. So now we have to bring this to light. It's been these pieces of legislation are passed in the dark of night, at midnight in state legislatures. You know, that's what happened in Iowa. These bans have been happening all over the place. And now it is time for us to wake up. And it's, it's really late for us to wake up. I'm not going to lie. We're at a place where it's a quite dire, but it's time for the whole pro-choice nation to wake up and say, no, stop. You know, I have to say, this is, I've heard about a lot of legislation, but I have never heard about this in Louisiana. I kind of want you to repeat that again. So it's been on the book since you said 2006 or 2000. 2006. Since you so how... First of all, why haven't they been able to pass this? Why is it still on the books? How does this work legally? Oh, because it's a post-road trigger ban. So it's like it, the state legislature is put, It's they're called trigger bans because they are pieces of legislation that are there in case Roe gets overturned. So you have to understand, this is a strategy. This is a, like I was saying, an infrastructure political strategy that's been funded over the course of the last 30 years that includes state local, judicial, at every level of government. And so the state strategy is to put these trigger bans in place that if Roe is overturned, abortion is automatically illegal. So they don't have to do anything after Roe is overturned. It just becomes illegal. And it's like, again, passed in the, in the dark of night in these places that have GOP legislators that have been elected with all of this investment, all of the gerrymandering that's been going on for years, it's just an investment in infrastructure. Right. It's all connected. You know, um, one of the comparisons that I've made recently was to the Supreme Court decision around Shelby County versus Holder with voting rights. Right. 
Yes. When that came down, there were trigger laws, you know, all over the country that were just waiting. And I think some went into the effect the very same day, if not, the, you know, maybe the next day, but they were ready. As soon as that provision, I think it was provision five, four or five in the um, Shelby County versus Holder decision with the Supreme Court. You know, once that was taken away, they went into effect, right? And we saw, I think the first year that we saw the effects of that was the, was it the 2008 election or 2010? Mm-hmm. That's right. And that you make a very important point because voting rights and these rights to reproductive freedom are absolutely 100% parallel and tracking each other. These are tools of oppression, which is taking away voting rights, taking away reproductive freedom, and they are mapping the same strategy. So everything that's been going on in the voting rights has been going on in reproductive freedom as well. And so that is what I want folks to know. Now, Texas is particularly insidious because it's a new it's a new strategy. It's a new kind of template. But these kinds of insidious pieces of legislation in various forms, like the Louisiana one that's been around since 2006, are all over the country already and have been sitting on the books for a couple decades. Well, what you just told me about Louisiana, they're like, to Texas, you know, hold my beer. Mm-hmm. That just sounds awful. But I, I do want to get into a little more detail about some of these states, like Mississippi. People have been talking about this case in Mississippi that's coming before the Supreme Court. And I think the ban would be at 15 weeks. Can you tell me a little bit more about that, the origins of the case and, you know, what effect it would have nationally? Yeah. Um, okay. So this is another urgent situation. This was actually something I was stressed out to the maximum before the Texas law went into effect. So here we go. Um, what, particularly since Donald Trump was elected president, we saw an increase of states passing unconstitutional abortion bans. So what that means is that Roe protects abortion to viability 24 weeks, does, and then subsequent Supreme Court cases, particularly Casey in 1992, does provide some government regulation in that second trimester. So that's where you see different kinds of, um, they're called trap laws, but they're like insidious little pieces of legislation to regulate your access. States have been also passing unconstitutional abortion bans from six to 15 weeks. So they, a state will just be, will say, we're going to ban abortion at six weeks. That's what happened in Georgia a couple of years ago. Iowa did it. We had a bunch of, of abortion bans that were passed on, during the Trump years. These are unconstitutional on its face. So it's a little bit of a game of chicken. It's like, here's the state passing this law, Planned Parenthood, the National Women's Law Center, Center for Reproductive Rights, ACLU, is required to sue because it's unconstitutional. So that lawsuit is passed. It goes through the judicial system, hits the appeals court. The appeals court has to overturn it because it's unconstitutional. And then it hits the, the docket of the Supreme Court to see if the Supreme Court wants to take it up. Now, the Supreme Court for the last couple of years have had roughly 20 cases like this, just sitting there waiting for them to decide if they want to consider it. And we've been waiting patiently, um, not patiently, for, we've been fretting <laughs> yeah. insid- instantly for years, wondering if they're going to take up one of these cases. And this year, they did. They picked up the Mississippi 15-week abortion ban with the specific question of, are any pre-viability abortion restrictions unconstitutional? Question mark. So this is this is key because obviously Roe v. Wade is a precedent, but we know this Supreme Court, with its stolen seats with Amy Coney Barrett and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, 
making it extremely conservative. We know that they are a little bit loose on precedent and that this Supreme Court actually has overturned some precedent on some other issues before in the last couple of years. So this is a precedent overturning situation. Is this Supreme Court going to overturn the precedent of Roe with this Mississippi case? With the question of any pre-viability restriction, is it unconstitutional? There is zero reason for them to consider this case because of the precedent of Roe, but they're going to do it anyway. And the, the argument that I think Amy Coney Barrett and Gorsuch probably made was the situation's different now, you know? Like, the, the, there are more people who are anti-choice. This propaganda that's been, been, that's been um, distributed throughout the country and has been confusing people and all these pieces of legislation that have passed and all of these bans that states have passed obviously indicate that we have more people that went to ban abortion than we did before. So you see that it's like insidious strategy that does not reflect the reality of our pro-choice nation. So this Mississippi ban is very scary. It will be argued probably between Thanksgiving and Christmas this year, and the decision could come probably around June next year. Right. No, that's really helpful because no one's explained it to me, the process, in that much detail before. So that's really helpful. So this sounds scarier than Texas, if you can imagine that, because it would overturn precedent, right? Because as you said, Roe establishes viability at, what, 24 weeks? Mm-hmm. Having the question open, like, well, is that reasonable, you know, given that, you know, people, some people don't like that? It's just like saying, you know, some people now in, you know, 2021 don't like the fact that black and brown people have equal access to the ballot. So, you know, should they have it? <laughs> well, well, I mean, Roe, what Roe does, it, it creates frameworks for um, limiting states' access to ban abortion or control reproductive freedom. So what this will do, if Roe is overturned, it turns it back over to the states. And that's when those post-Roe trigger bans activate. That's when um, other pre-Roe trigger bans activate. But that's also when states like New York or California or Massachusetts or Oregon and Vermont, who have strong protections and have created more access to reproductive freedom, that's where they come into play here. There will be what I think reproductive freedom zones, as there were before in 1973. People are going to have to start traveling as they're doing in Texas. I mean, right now, we heard in Fort Worth, uh, the Whole Women's Health Clinic had to turn away 70 patients who already had appointments for their reproductive care. And these people, pregnant people in Texas, do not have access to abortion right now after six weeks. And to be clear, I want to be clear about this six-week thing. It's actually really two weeks. It's only two weeks after a missed period. So, You've only got two weeks to really make any decisions if you are even aware that you're pregnant at all. So there's a major crisis. Now, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, all of this decision-making and structure goes into state law. And again, 56% of this country is hostile to reproductive freedom. So we've got a real crisis here. Yeah. And, you know, just imagine, I don't know, I mean, best case scenario, if there is a best case scenario, um, you know, following that, because you said it would happen sometime in June. Um, mm-hmm. You know, let's say we have, you know, we have more blue trifectas in you know, more states across the country, um, more, you know, more blue seats, more Democratic seats in the Senate and in Congress and President Biden's reelected. Undoing something like this just sounds nearly impossible. You know, I don't know, unless you expand the Supreme Court. Uh, no, 
no, no, nothing's impossible. There's, there, are, there are solutions to this. Do, this is where we can, you want to talk about positive things now? Okay, sure, please. <laughs> <laughs> can we? Okay. <laughs> yes, yes. I have, I, there are positive things. There are things that we can hang our hat on. Um, there is work we have to do for sure. There's no doubt. So, and that means we all have responsibility for this solution. So first of all, step number one, just know that we are a pro-choice nation. 80% of people in this country do not want Roe Wade overturned and want access to abortion. Certainly people have different, they bring different perspectives to this. They might have um, certain religious limitations or they have different policy nuances to how much access they want. But at the, at the end of the day, folks understand we have to have access to reproductive freedom, that the decision about your future and what goes on in your body has to happen between you and your doctor, your family, your higher power, period. They get it, 80%. So it is, it is incumbent upon all of us to claim our space in that pro-choice nation and to manage our own language and our own mind in the way that we have we react to the issue of um, thinking that it's a women's issue, to thinking that it's polarizing, to kind of feeling cringy when it comes up as a thing, to um, not want to talk about it. It is really important to realize that we have been fed a bunch of propaganda about what the laws mean. We all have, I, me too, about the words that are being fed to us about the different medical terms that aren't real. You know, I'll give you an example, like the heartbeat thing is a propaganda term. It's a propaganda term, doesn't exist, and it makes us all feel bad when we talk about it. So we have to manage our own thinking and claim our space in the pro-choice majority, be willing to talk about it. Second, federal legislation would make a huge difference here. The Women's Health Protection Act is coming up to, for a vote in Congress this week, and the Senate needs to pass it to filibuster reform would be really great, but there is pro-choice. There are some pro-choice women Republicans on the Senate side. It would be great if we all get on the phone, pro-choice nation, and call your federal legislators right now and demand, demand, demand the Women's Health Protection Act. It's unfortunate it's called the Women's Health Protection Act because it's actually for everybody. You know, it's everyone's Health Protection Act. It's everyone's Freedom Protection Act. But that's what it's called, and we need it passed, and it's coming up for a vote. It would codify Roe v. Wade into federal legislation, which would help. That's important. Right. And expanding the Supreme Court, sure, sure, yes. But that's a long-term solution, so um, we need some help now. No, you're right. The language is really important. This has, you know, peripheral repercussions beyond the person who's actually pregnant, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the a freedom thing, issue. It's a freedom, it's a freedom issue. issue. It's a life issue. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, you it's, know. Really, it's really the perspective of what you believe government's role is. Do you believe there should be sheriff's deputies in the hospital investigating every pregnancy? Do you believe that cops should be looking at any miscarriage? Like, really? Honestly, like this is, do you really believe that? Because if you don't, then you are part of pro-choice nation, right? Yeah. And that goes down into like the state and local impact, which is there are huge amounts of political action we can do at the state and local level, because that is where these laws have been passed. So it is absolutely incumbent upon everyone to pay attention to their state and local elections, get involved in them know who's running and support someone. Now that's what we do at Vote Per Choice. We really look down at those down ballot candidates. We provide a voter guide that provides every voter a perspective on who's running and who they should vote for. 
through the lens of reproductive freedom. We um, support down-ballot pro-choice champions in state, local elections. And we're talking about it's super important to have pro-choice sheriffs, pro-choice district attorneys, pro-choice public defenders, because those are the folks that are going to be enforcing or not enforcing these laws. So, you know, I always tell this story about this this 26-year-old woman in Indiana in 2016 who used abortion pills that I used for my own like medical abortion in San Francisco in 2006. She used them in Indiana in 2016 to induce a miscarriage. And she was charged and thrown in jail and served six, six months in jail for inducing a miscarriage. Wow. And think about the elected officials that were involved in that decision. It was the sheriff, the district attorney, the um, state legislature, and the judge that was appointed by Mike Pence, who was governor at the time. And so we have to look at all of those local elections now everywhere. So 2021, there are 45,000 races on the ballot in 31 states. Their state and local offices get involved. So be a local voter, be a state voter. And if you can, run for office yourself, run for town council, run for school board, get involved in your party, do it because we need you all to be there taking over this insidious um, infrastructure of anti-choicers that have taken these opportunities. So it's really important for that, for us to focus our political action on those state and local races. And the final, the final call to action is that, you know, people don't have access to abortion right now, both across the country, but particularly in Texas. So that means that they need to travel or they're putting themselves in risk for lawsuits, um, that the people around them are putting at risk for lawsuits. So giving to abortion funds is really important because the national abortion funds and then the state and local abortion funds are the ones that are providing money to people who are traveling across state for access to abortion. So that's a good place to put your money if you want to donate. It's really, really helpful right now. So, of course, we want to continue to give as you did for reproductive freedom, but those are really good places to give now. You know, I feel as if there is a lack of connectedness on the left like there is on the right. Right. You know, I think was it last month, people, there was a huge march for voting rights, which is which is great. You know, last summer, everyone was in the streets for you know civil rights and, you know, police reform and criminal justice reform. And I think that on this side, there is a lack of connecting how all these things are related. You know, like we were just talking about how Republicans have been putting judges in place. You know, they're doing all of these things. They've been putting just state legislators in place. Right. For, for decades. And I, I think that that piece is missing on this side. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. That has been my my professional and political experience. And it's really unfortunate. So, again, what I've observed is that politically, people want to put this in the women's issues box. They want to kind of stick it over in a corner. And, you know, let's be honest. What we're talking about is is a very personal thing. We have to be talking about our pregnancies, our sexuality, the choices we make in our lives that are very intimate. We're talking about our sexual decisions. And nobody really wants to be talking about that at scale, right? And so this has been something that even the, the Democratic Party and the progressive folks have not wanted to really embrace and talk about at scale. 
It's like, oh, the women's groups will take care of this. And the fact is everybody needs to be involved. And that's, it's getting better, you know, like more organizations are starting to embrace the idea of reproductive freedom as a foundational issue, but we have a long way to go here. And of course, the Women's March is going to be activating on October 2nd. So there's going to be marches on October 2nd, but we need to do more of that and we need to have everyone involved. You know, I'm grateful to serve on the board of Men for Choice. I'm grateful to see that Vote Pro Choice itself is growing because more voters and candidates are talking about reproductive freedom in all of their races. So it's happening. Awakening is happening now. We are about a decade behind, but the awakening is happening now. So Vote Pro Choice endorses pro-choice candidates, right? But, you know, I, I do have a question about that because aren't all Democrats pro-choice. So what's the difference between like a regular pro-choice Democrat and a vote pro-choice Democrat? Well, we talk about pro-choice champions, that these are people who understand that reproductive freedom is a foundational issue, that it's an integrated, intersexual reality of people to be able to, be able to live um, full, self-actualized lives, that reproductive freedom is connected to reproductive justice, which is about healthy communities and access to health care and raising children in healthy environments and education and economic justice, that your ability to control when, how, whether you want to have a family or grow your family is a deep fundamental issue. And we support those candidates that lead with these things. Now, some Democrats you know, mostly all Democrats have like, yeah, I'm pro-choice, but they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to center it. They want to kind of put it over in the corner. We want to lift up the folks that are sounding the alarm and saying this is the most important thing or one of the most important things and it's foundational. And we are hoping that more Democrats, uh, more progressives are going to be centering this issue now because it is so key. So a vote pro-choice, pro-choice champion candidate, you can bet, is going to be leading on these issues. But even that, you can guarantee that those are going to be the folks that are also leading on voting rights and economic justice, because these are candidates that understand that the tools of oppression are multifaceted and that they're all connected. So before we close out, just remind me again of some of the action items. So if people are listening and they want to, to help, you know, you said running for office. What are some things that people can do? Oh, the calls to action, once again, remember, starts with us, our brains. We have been inundated with propaganda, so we just have to remind ourselves this is not a polarizing issue. We are a pro-choice nation. Lean in. Talk about it. You're all part of the reproductive rights movement now. Welcome. Number two, federal legislation has to be passed. It is on deck in Congress right now, so time to get back on those phones and call your federal legislators and beg them to pass the Women's Health Protection Act. Now, it's urgent, 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 urgent. Number three, get very aware of your state and local elected officials. That's what Vote Per Choice does. We have made that totally available to you. Just sign up on voteperchoice.us. We will provide you a voter guide that lays it all out. You cannot make a mistake, but get involved. I'd love to see you also run for office, particularly school boards and state legislative races. We can help you. We will endorse and support candidates. We can also find partners to help you. And if you want to give, of course, continue to give to your reproductive rights, health and justice organizations. The local ones are very important. Um, Planned Parenthood clinics, very important to keep going. But give to abortion funds, too, because those are helping the folks that need services right now. So those are your calls to action. 
That's perfect. Can you give me a list offline of abortion funds and I will post those in the show notes? Yeah, I have a really great link that's, that um, has all of the Texas abortion funds and it distributes them equally. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Heidi Seek, thank you so much for all of this work, all of the work you've done. And thank you for taking time to talk to me today about this. Oh, Jennifer, thank you for having this conversation and continuing to make sure that this is centered and that we continue to talk about it. It's so important. 